I remember first pondering the question as a teenager as I was reading through the Bible for the very first time. What about those who never hear the gospel? What happens to those who live their entire lives without ever once hearing the name of Jesus Christ? What, what will become of those who, by virtue of their geographic or cultural or, or religious isolation, never have the opportunity to respond to the gospel of God's salvation in Christ Jesus? I mean, I remember that question weighing down upon me in my bedroom as, as a 15, 16-year-old kid. And as far as I can remember, it, w- it was never addressed in my Sunday school classes, nor from the pulpit of my local church. Now, that's not to say that I didn't hear a great deal about the importance of believing in Jesus. On the contrary, from my earliest days in church... I was taught that Christ had died for my sins, that He had been buried, and that He had risen again on the third day in order that I might have everlasting life. And I heard many sermons on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ because you cannot attend a Baptist church for any length of time at all without hearing sermons on, for instance, John 14, 6, in which Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Or Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I knew from a very early age that the choice for me was Jesus or judgment. Christ or condemnation. Salvation or damnation. I knew that I was, I was faced with a decision and that the weight of that decision was intense and fraught with eternal consequences. To reject Christ, I was told, is to choose hell. But as far as I can remember, these sermons never dealt with the issue of what happens to those who do not reject Christ. But neither do they receive Christ because they've never heard the name of Christ. But then I went to seminary where where future pastors are forced to wrestle with with difficult questions of theology and discover answers from the Bible that we may at times find unsettling. Seminary is designed to be a time when those who will enter into the ministry and become ministers of the gospel, have their their worldview molded and and refined and sharpened by three years of immersion in in the biblical text. And and that is not always a, a pleasant experience. In fact, there are times when that can be quite unsettling. And this was certainly the case for me. I remember wrestling with this very issue as well as a a host of others throughout my time in seminary. But there's one experience that, that sticks in my mind and I remember it very, very clearly. It happened near the end of my seminary career, one of the last classes that I took. It was a course entitled Introduction to World Religions and it was taught by Dr. Stan May who had been an IMB missionary in Zimbabwe. And in one of his first lectures in this class, Dr. May 
produced this, this large graphic produced by the IMB in which a map of the world was color-coded in order to display the percentage of evangelical witness in the various nations throughout the world. In other words, the map showed which parts of the world had access to the gospel, what percentage of access they had, and which parts of the world had no access to the gospel at all. The map stunned me. Nearly every nation in what is, what is known as the 1040 window. Okay, the 1040 window is between 10 degrees north latitude and 40 degrees south latitude. Nearly every nation in the 1040 window had little to no access to the gospel. And about 40% of the world's population lives in that 1040 window. 40% of the world's population, yet it accounts for 90% of the world's unreached people groups. In fact, catch this. The top 50 unevangelized cities by population in the entire world, all 50 of them, are in the 1040 window. Now, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention defines an unreached people group as a group of people, an ethnic group of people that has less than 2% of its population that self-identify as evangelical Christians. And according to their most recent research data, 6,544 people groups comprising 57% of the world's population are unreached. 57% of the world's population are unreached. Now, of these 6,544 people groups, 2,982, that is nearly 3,000 people groups, are further classified not only as unreached, but as unengaged. They are unengaged, unreached people groups, meaning that they have almost no access to the gospel in any form whatsoever. Right now, in the world, as we gather here at First Baptist Nixa this morning, there are 1.4 billion people who are unreached and unengaged in the world. They have no encounter with the gospel. 1.4 billion. Now, Dr. May stood in front of this map, and I, at the age of 25, sat in front of it just staring. And he pointed toward the United States, which in contrast to the 1040 window, which was colored in a dark red, the United States was colored in a very dark green, which represented an abundance of gospel access. How many churches are there in Nixa this morning gathering? Okay. A bunch, I heard. That's a very scientific figure. Thank you, Bob. Not all of them are preaching the gospel, but, but many of them are. How many, how many evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches are there in Nixa that has a population within the city limits of about 20,000 people? A bunch. Whole of the United States with, with a few areas up in the northwest, northeast. Whole of the United States was, was colored in a dark green. 
representing an abundance of gospel access. And Dr. May stood before it, stood before a a class of people like myself, 25 years old, on the precipice of entering into the ministry. And he asked this question. He says, don't you wonder why, in God's grace, you were born here and not in any one of these red countries where 57% of the world's population lives? Because, listen, and he pointed his finger at the, at the darkness of the 1040 window. Because in these countries, people just like you are born, and they grow, and they marry, and they bear children, and they die without ever once hearing the name of Jesus. And the thought really startled me. Why was I born into a region of the world that is saturated with the gospel? And what would have become of me if I had not been? What if I had been born in a red country? Has that question ever troubled you? You ever, you ever laid awake at night pondering the implications of a salvation through Christ alone? The implications of a I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When you know that more than half of this world has never heard the name of the one through whom everyone must go if they're going to get to the Father. What becomes of those who live and die without ever hearing the gospel, without ever hearing of the saving work of Jesus Christ, and therefore without ever trusting in Christ alone for salvation, without ever going to the Father through the Son? Because they've never heard of the Son. It's a sobering question. You thought you were going to come in after Christmas and get an easy one. We don't have time for easy sermons. It's a sobering question and it has an unsettling answer for many of us. What I want to do this morning is I want to answer the question from the Scriptures. I want to deal with some of the the common objections to what I believe is the clear biblical answer. And then I will conclude with the application Okay, what must we do in light of this truth? So the clearest answer to that question, I think, is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. Let me read it again for us. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's, there's the universal offer of the gospel. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But... How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And then Paul summarizes. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And in that passage, Paul presents a chain that has five links in it. Five necessary steps that must take place in order for a sinner to be saved. And I want to walk through those five steps one at a time. Okay, Number one, if a sinner, any sinner, anywhere in the world, at any time, is to be saved, first he must call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. It's the universal free offer of the gospel. Anyone, man, woman, boy, girl, slave, free, rich, poor, American, Iranian, Chinese, Cuban, Peruvian, you, anyone who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be delivered from the guilt of their sin and will be saved from the wrath that is to come. Anyone. There is not one person who calls upon the name of Christ who will be rejected by God. So what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Someone calls upon the name of the Lord in a biblical sense when in desperation over their sin and their guilt, they flee to Christ. They run to Christ They cast themselves upon His mercy and they call upon Him to rescue them from the wrath and judgment to come. That's my definition of calling upon the name of the Lord. Let me give it to you again. What's Paul talking about in Romans 10.13? Someone calls upon the name of the Lord when in desperation over their sin and their guilt, they flee to Christ, cast themselves upon His mercy, and call out to Him to rescue them from the wrath and judgment That is coming upon them. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Is calling out for salvation. To the only one. Who is able to save. So so let's establish this this morning. I want you to hear me. Wherever, Wherever you're at. Wherever you come from. Whatever your theological convictions are. Hear me this morning. All who call upon the name of Christ. Will be saved. And only. Those who call upon the name of Christ will be saved. All who call upon the name of Christ and only those who call upon the name of Christ will be saved. That's the first link, calling. Second, if a sinner is to be saved, he must believe in Christ. How, will then, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? 10.14 Which only makes sense, right? I mean, this is a very logical argument, logical flow of thought. In order for someone to flee to Christ and to call upon his name for salvation, he first must believe that Jesus is willing and able to save. He must must believe in Jesus' qualifications to save him from the wrath to come. So what does he need to believe? He needs to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He needs to believe that Jesus lived a sinless and righteous life in the sight of God. He needs to believe that Jesus died upon the cross as a sinless sacrifice to absorb God's wrath against his sin. He needs to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day to give testimony that his death was sufficient to satisfy the demands of God's judgment on behalf of sinners. This is what qualifies Jesus to save His life, His death, His resurrection. And before a sinner will call upon the name of Christ to save them, that sinner must be convinced that Jesus is in fact willing and able to save. So number two, a sinner must believe the gospel of Christ. No one calls upon the name that they do not know. No one calls out to a Savior that they do not believe is able to deliver. All right, so got a call. 
In order to call, you've got to believe. In order to believe, number three, you must hear. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So I've got to be convinced that Jesus is able and willing to save me. Where does that conviction come from? It comes from the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. So then faith, believing, comes where? It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So in order to be saved, a sinner must believe the gospel. And in order to believe the gospel, he must have actually heard the gospel. Saving faith must have an object. It must be attached to the biblical, historical truth of Christ. Because faith in the wrong object or faith in the wrong person or faith in the wrong truth claims... No matter how sincere, no matter how intense, does not save. Harry Ironside, former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, he told the story of uh, the flamboyant evangelist from the early part of the 20th century who went by the name of Gypsy Smith. He was so named because he had grown up in a gypsy camp. Gypsy Smith came to Chicago where, where Ironside was pastoring in order to conduct some evangelistic meetings. And Ironside on one occasion attended and heard him preach. And on that occasion, Gypsy Smith told many, many fascinating and entertaining stories about what it was like to grow up in the, in the midst of gypsies. But he didn't say much of anything at all about the gospel. And at the end of his message, he gave an altar call. And hundreds of people flooded the altar and responded. And as Harry Ironside began to ponder what exactly the crowd was responding to, he said perhaps they wanted to become gypsies. It's not faith that saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. Faith in Christ and in his gospel. Therefore, in order to be saved, a sinner must hear the gospel. And in the hearing of the gospel, an amazing thing happens. In the hearing of the truth about Christ, they they hear the word of Christ. I want you to look very closely at the text of verse 14. How... Will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not of whom. That's not not the right way to translate this. Whom they have not heard. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Which tells us something about what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. When the gospel is proclaimed rightly... And powerfully, in, in, the, in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself speaks through the gospel and calls sinners out of death and into life and out of unbelief and into saving faith. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're talking about a sovereign and effectual call. And it comes through and only through the preaching of the gospel. So if a sinner does not hear the gospel, they're not going to hear the word of Christ and they're not going to be called. 
And if they do not hear the word of Christ, they will not have faith because faith only comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. And if they do not have faith, they're not going to call. And if they do not call, they're not going to be saved. So a sinner needs to call. They need to believe. They need to hear. Number four, if a sinner is to be saved, someone must take the gospel to him. How will they hear without a preacher? You know, the gospel is not intuitive. Nobody just wakes up one morning and knows the gospel. They don't, they don't know it by nature. They don't come to know it through observation. The gospel must be proclaimed in order for a person to hear and believe and call. Now, sometimes this proclamation comes in written form, which is why a couple of months ago we had our Gideon representatives come. What do they do? They give the word. They set it in hotel rooms. They set it in jail cells. They set it in hospitals. They take it to the 1040 window. They, they flood the nations with the word of Christ. And through that word, people, sinners hear, and, and they believe, and they call, and they're saved. So sometimes this preaching comes through written form, but the predominant, primary, chosen medium of communication by which God has ordained that His gospel message that saves sinners is actually going to save sinners is through the means of preaching. Oral proclamation. Sharing. Telling. Speaking. God was well pleased, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, through the foolishness of preaching, to save those who believe. God was well pleased to save those who believe. How? Through speaking, through preaching, through proclamation. God especially blesses, uh, what what does the Westminster Confession say? God blesses the reading, but especially the preaching of the word and makes it effectual unto salvation to those who believe. When I was in college, it was fashionable to quote from St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, which was, which was intended to promote a, a, a sort of lifestyle van- evangelism whereby I just be nice to people, and out of my niceness, they suddenly know that they're sinners and that Christ died for them and was raised on the third day. There's two problems with that quote. Number one, Francis never said it, and would never have said it because St. Francis was best known as a preacher, but secondly, it's absolute nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words is like saying build a house, and if necessary, use wood. Words are necessary to the understanding of news. The gospel is news. A more biblical statement would be preach the gospel at all times and since it is necessary, use words. It must be told. Okay, so we have preaching, that's the fourth. Someone must preach in order for them to hear and they must hear in order to believe and they must believe in order to call and they must call in order to be saved. But there's a fifth one. In order for a sinner to be saved, the one who brings the gospel to that sinner must himself be sent. How will they preach unless they are sent? 
Which once again, it, I mean, it's just a logical flow of thought, a logical deduction from what has previously been said. How will missionaries flood the field with gospel proclamation unless churches send them out and fund their evangelistic es- efforts? How will Bibles be printed in order to be, to be sent out unless churches pay for their publication? How will radio broadcasts be sent over the borders into closed countries unless unless churches pay for the construction of radio towers and pay for the airtime to beam them over into Iran and places like that? How's it going to happen? They've got to be sent. God sends his messengers by means of his word and his spirit. His word tells them, go. Preach the gospel to all creation. I'm going to say that to you at the end of this service. You're going to hear the words from the Lord saying, go, go, go. Okay, he tells you to go. And then he sends you by means of his spirit, giving you ears to hear, saying, I'm going to go. Placing within you the burning desire. So God sends preachers by his word and his spirit. He sends missionaries by his word and his spirit. And churches send them out through prayer and financial support. But they've got to be sent. Because unless they're sent, preachers can't go. And unless preachers go, sinners can't hear. And unless sinners hear, they cannot believe. And unless they believe, they cannot call. And unless they call, they cannot be saved. You see how it all fits? All right? So let's summarize this. I want want you to see this very, very clearly. Here's the implication of this text as regards our question that that we asked at the very beginning. What happens to those who never hear the gospel, all right? I want to review the flow of logic so that we see it very, very clearly. Paul begins, verse 13, by stating that everyone who calls on the name of Christ for salvation will be saved. You see it? Verse 13. Second. Paul then says that it is impossible for someone to call upon the name of Christ unless they first believed the word of Christ. Third, it is impossible for someone to believe in Christ unless they have first heard of Christ. Fourth, it is impossible for someone to hear of Christ unless a messenger goes and preaches Christ. And fifth, it is impossible for someone to go and preach the gospel of Christ unless God, through local churches sends them out as messengers and heralds of the gospel. Do you see the chain? There's no weak links. Now, let's reverse the order and let's draw out the implication. Okay? Let's go backwards. Here's the interactive part of this message. I want you to answer my question. What if no one is sent to one of those unreached, unengaged people? Will the gospel be preached to them. What if no one goes to preach the gospel to one of those unreached people? Will they hear the word of Christ? What if an unreached people do not hear the word of Christ? Will they believe on Christ? What if the unreached people do not believe on Christ? Will they call upon the name of Christ? And what if an unreached people do not call upon the name of Christ? Will they be saved? So I think we have an answer. The implication of this text is clear as regards the fate of those who never hear the gospel. I want to give it for you in a statement so that there's no misunderstandings. A person who never hears the gospel of Christ will not be saved, but rather will be judged for his sin and eternally condemned. A person 
who never hears the gospel of Christ will not be saved, but rather will be judged for his sin and eternally condemned. Now, does that unsettle you? I hope to God that it does. It's supposed to. It is supposed to unsettle us out of our comfortable middle American affluent life. It is supposed to to create within our hearts a burden that will not let us go. If there is no burden in your heart, then you haven't understood the implications of Romans 10. And you will never feel the urgency of the command, go, go, preach the gospel to all creation. But some of you, Hear this this morning, and, and, the, and the, the objection is rising in, in your mind. That's not fair. It is not fair for God to ordain one way of salvation, faith in Christ, and then condemn people who have not known of that way of salvation, never heard the name of Christ. That's not fair. All right? Fair enough. Let's, let's deal with it. We, we shouldn't shy away from charges of injustice. Let's, let's deal with them head on. I want to give you two responses this morning. Number one, this objection arises, I think, from a misunderstanding of the biblical doctrine of sin. See, many, many people think that the only sin that sends a person to hell is the sin of rejecting Christ. Therefore, unless someone consciously rejects Christ, God can't send them to hell. It would be unjust to condemn him for rejecting a person that they've never met. Well, if if the premise were true, I would agree with the conclusion. It would indeed be unjust for God to judge sinners for rejecting a gospel that they've never heard. That would be unjust. I agree. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that sinners are judged only for what they do with Jesus. The Bible teaches that every man is accountable to God for rejecting the knowledge or light that he has been given. And God has given to everyone on earth some measure of light. This light is known as general revelation. God has revealed this to everyone in general. All people in all places at all times know general truths about God's existence and attributes and his moral character. Everyone. The knowledge of God's existence and his attributes comes through the observation of nature. Okay? So when man looks out at nature, he sees the way the sun rises, he sees the way the seasons turns, he sees the intricate design of everything in the, in the created order. He can learn something about the Creator, okay? So we're going to stay in Romans today, but I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. We got it up here? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul begins his letter after an introduction by saying this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, okay? Why, Paul? Why does God send out his wrath against everyone for their unrighteousness? Why? For 
that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Let me tell you what he's saying. Since the creation of the world, God's existence, his power and his wisdom have been clearly seen and understood through what God has made. So that everyone on earth knows by intuition that there is a creator who made all of this. And that this creator who made all of this must be really strong and must be really wise. Everyone on earth that you will meet, whether they've heard of Jesus, knows that unless or until they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Say, I don't want to think about that. The problem is not that they do not know about God. The problem is that they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness and reject it. So every person on earth will be judged for what they do with the light that they've been given. And everyone has some measure of light. The knowledge of God's moral character, Romans chapter 2, turn there with me comes through an inner moral law that God has hardwired into the heart of man. Okay, We call this inner moral law, this inner sense of right and wrong, we call it the conscience. And from this internal moral witness, we learn that God is, is a moral being. He's concerned with right and wrong and true and false. And everyone's got one. Some are more sharp than others. But everyone's got a conscience. That's why anywhere you go on earth, whether they have ever read this or not, they know that it's wrong to steal. And they know that it's wrong to commit murder. And they know that it's wrong to sleep with other people's spouses. And they know that it's wrong to to covet other people's possessions. They know what's right and they know what's wrong and they choose the wrong and they suppress the right. Everyone, therefore, understands instinctively that they are accountable to the Creator for this moral law, even those who have no access to the Bible. Which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, for when the Gentiles, okay, non-Jews, who do not have the law, when, when, the, when the Gentiles that don't have a Bible, they don't have written revelation from God saying, don't do that. When when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, instinctively the things of the law, when when they don't steal, and when they don't kill each other, and when they don't sleep with other people's spouses and commit adultery, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written On their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, depending on whether they're doing right or wrong, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So everyone on earth knows God as creator and everyone on earth knows God as judge. Okay, the problem is not that they don't know that God exists. The problem is they don't want to be accountable to him. 
Every man and every woman on earth has access to this general revelation. They know God is creator, they know God is judge, and they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and they've rejected it. Everyone. What happens? Romans chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they knew God, they knew Him. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Skipping down a bit. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. It was a a moral decision. God's going to hold me accountable for the wrong that I do. I want to do wrong, therefore I'm not going to acknowledge him any longer. I don't think that he exists. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Look at the next line. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So let's settle this in our mind. No one on earth is innocent before God because no one on earth is ignorant of God. They know God as creator, and they know him as judge, and they know it by nature. What they cannot know by nature is God as savior, which is why it must be preached. Everyone on earth has rejected this general revelation, and it is for that rejection of the light that they have that they are judged and condemned before God, not for rejecting a light that they've never seen, because that would be unjust. So that's my first response. Second, I would just argue from the nature and the character of God. God says, you know what? I'm fair. And I'm just. And I'm holy. I will not and I cannot be unjust. That's what he says. Everything he does, everything he says, everything he wills is good and right and, un- and fair. And, and the same thing could not be said for us. So, so it's a little bit of a problem when we sit in the judgment seat and we call into question his fairness. We need to take great care about the charge of injustice and directing it towards God. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 9 when he's talking about the doctrine of election, another doctrine that people say, that's not fair. Paul says this, what shall we say then? There there is no injustice with God, is there? God forbid, may it never be. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from... The same lump, one vessel for honorable use and the the other for common use. Paul says, be careful about saying that's not fair when God says, this is the way I do things. 
Because his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I can't fully comprehend all that he's thinking and all that he's doing. But this I know. He is God and I am not and y'all are not. We're not God. So it is our job to receive what God has said and to say, yes, Lord. And God has said, all of the earth stands underneath my judgment and wrath. And he says, so church, you go, go. We say, Yes, sir. And I need to remember this. He is good and just and fair and merciful in all of his dealings with mankind. Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes. God can be trusted to act justly and rightly and fairly by every person on earth. We can trust him simply because of who he is. And understand that God is far more concerned with justice and fairness and righteousness than we are. And God is far more concerned with mercy and grace and love than we are. And God is far more concerned with the upholding of his own glory than we are. And listen, and God loves the nations of the earth Far more than we do. So we can trust in his character. And receive what he says. As I thought through this message. I found myself praying for two responses. First, I I prayed that we, First Baptist Nixa, would be convinced of the necessity of global missions. Do you see that it's necessary? It is a vital link in the chain without which the chain is broken. Preaching, sending. That's got to happen in order for hearing and believing and calling and saving to take place. So I prayed that we would, be, we would be convinced of the necessity of global missions. And I prayed that we would be overwhelmed with a sense of the urgency of global missions. The necessity is established by the truth that in order for a person to be saved, they must call. And in order to call, they must believe. And in order to believe, they must hear. In order to hear, it must be proclaimed. In order to be proclaimed, they must be sent. Okay? So that tells me that there is no salvation of the nations apart from the evangelization of the nations. It's necessary. Go is not an optional command. William Carey, the father of modern missions, knew this well. It's famously told that when he went to his church board and asked them to send him to India to go take the gospel to the nations, that one one elderly church leader replied, Young man, when God chooses to save the heathen of India, he can do so without your help. No! No! Because how will they call in him they've not believed? And how will they believe in him they've not heard? And how will they hear unless William Carey goes to India and preaches to them? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, Jesus says in Mark 16, 15. Why? Because the going and the preaching are essential to the hearing, believing, calling, and saving. It's necessary. But I also... I want us to feel this. Heat and light. 
That's what I pray for with messages. Light, help us understand. Heat, let us feel. I want us to feel, feel, feel the urgency of, of this text. Because since I began preaching about 40 minutes ago, 4,200 people around the world have died. 4,200. At least 2,300 of them died having never heard the name of Jesus just while I was preaching. 2,300. 2301. 2302. Feel it. These, these people, they are, they are rebels against God. They are darkened of, of, of mind and heart of heart. They are depraved and deceitful and, and wicked and evil and haters of God and people whom God loves and created in his own image. People. Like you and me dropping dead, not hearing the name of Jesus. The task is necessary and it is urgent. So, so we, we stand on the precipice this morning, overlooking a new year of life and, and ministry. It is a year that is full of opportunity. 365 days God has given us, Lord willing. And we at First Baptist Nixa are tremendous stewards of two great resources, time and money. I want you to know we have more money than almost any church in the history of the world. 21st century, middle America, First Baptist Nixa. And we have more time. Most of the world works 12 hours a day. We've got time and we've got money. Stewards, how are we going to spend these two resources in 2015? As I see it, if this church is to live in light of the necessity and the urgency of world missions, then we must send and we must proclaim. We must give and we must go. 10.16. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I want beautiful feet. I want, I want Jesus to think my feet are beautiful. Don't you? How, how beautiful are those who... who who bring good news of, of good things, good news of great joy for all peoples. They're beautiful. And I want Jesus to think I'm beautiful. That's why I'm going to Cuba. I want Jesus to think I'm beautiful. So let's, let's go, right? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, Cuba, Peru, Nixa, the ends of the earth, let's, let's go in 2015. It's necessary and it's urgent. So let's go. Our God and Father, I pray that you will bless this word today with fruit. I pray that friends and neighbors will come to know Jesus as a result of the conviction that we have received today. I pray that people that we haven't even met in countries we haven't even been to yet will come to know 
the saving knowledge of Christ because of a work that you do in the hearts of your people this morning through this word. Lord, I I want the nations to be glad and to sing for joy because they have known the gospel of salvation and they have known the Savior. And I want a part in making the nations glad. I want to be glad. I want to sing for joy. And there's a connection between my joy and their joy. And their hearing and my going. So I I ask now, I don't even know how to ask it. I think like this. I ask that you would stir in this church. That that I and, and we would live in light of the necessity and the urgency of evangelism. Of global, local, everywhere, every nation missions. Stir in my heart. Create within me a a profound sense of urgency. So that we would be a sending church. And a preaching church. In order that sinners may hear and believe and call and be saved. Come, do your work. I ask, I beg, I plead in the name of Christ Jesus. Transform us. I ask in your name, on behalf of your people.